answering all of your strength and rehab questions on today's Q&A. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Okay, we are answering some Patreon questions today. I have been reaching out to a few Facebook members over the past week or so to see uh, if they're interested in starting um, a Patreon support team and just joining our small family. Um, What Patreons do uh, is donate $5 per month just to say thanks, just to keep the podcast running, to show your appreciation for what you have been learning and um, just being thankful for the podcast. So if you'd like to do that, I'd really appreciate it. And um, it's just a way of me saying thanks. Uh, those who do support the podcast, what I do is allow them the opportunity to um, ask questions to expert guests and ask questions to myself on episodes just like this. Um, So we have a few new members and they've submitted their questions. And I just just love when I have um, the opportunity to answer your questions, because if you have that question, there's a high chance that other runners have the exact same question and so trying my best to educate everyone and I've got the questions listed here and we're just going to go through them so um, if you are interested the Patreon link is in the show notes of every episode Um, you just quickly uh, click on that submit your details and then you'll be sent questions that um, it'd be once every one to two weeks it'd be like okay um today's topic is going to be on this or in a week's time, I'm going to have this guest. Uh, Are there any questions that you might have? And then you also get a shout out on the podcast and uh, yeah, I can answer any questions that you might have in some experts. um, For example, next week, we're going to have Lizzie Marlowe to talk about tip post tendinopathy. I've um, decided to open the floor up to everyone. So every, uh, I've just posted on my social media, Instagram, Facebook group for anyone who has a question and um, that won't always be the case for guests. And when do, experts do come on, I will ask some only to the Patreon group. And um, if there's a massive, if I do post it onto social media and there is a massive influx of questions, then the Patreons do get priority when it comes to being featured. So um, that's about the Patreon stuff. Um, yeah, in terms of running this week, um, I had the... What, when did I release the last episode um, with uh, Benoit? Um, 
that was a couple of days ago. So you probably don't need to know too much. Not too much has changed for me. <laughs> um, I'm actually doing a seminar at the moment, a Tony Robbins four day seminar, which actually virtual. And um, <laughs> it's just a big party for the, the next four days. They're long days. They're um, like 13 hours of just uh, growth and personal development. So really enjoying that, enjoying it with my brother at the moment. So there hasn't been a lot of chances to be running. <laughs> um, all right, let's dive in. So our first question is around, oh, it's from Vanessa Patel. So thank you for submitting your question. She asks, what are the difference between uh, heel drops? She's gone from having a shoe that was 10 mil in heel drop to 13 mil in heel drop. And she started developing knee pain only after two runs and has um, some questions about it. So before we dive into this, let me explain what a heel drop is in a shoe. And if you were to look at your shoe, uh, you'd see that um, if you were to pinch kind of like inside the shoe where the heel sits, um, so your fingers are on the inside of the shoe and also your thumb is on the outside of the shoe, you'll see the stack height. So you'll see the difference in height from uh, where that fabric makes contact with the ground to where your heel um, is uh, risen up. And so every shoe will be different. So you might have a stack height of two millimeters. You might have a stack height of 15 millimeters. It just means your heel is further up from the, the ground. And the difference is if you were to then pinch the, um, where your, the base of your toes are in the shoe, you'll see that that isn't as thick. And the difference between the two is your heel drop. So, if you were just to hold the shoes uh, by your side, uh, have a look at the stack height of the heel, have a look at the little stack height of where your toes should be, and the difference in that is your heel drop. And because different shoes are different, um, the stack height or the heel drop will have different effects on your body. And there's tons of different shoes. There's the hocker shoes that are maximalist. There are tons of barefoot shoes out there that just range uh, differently. So. The general rule of thumb is if you go from um, a heel height, if the heel stack is increased from say 10 mil to 15 mil, then what we're doing is we're taking strain away from things that are around the Achilles region. So the Achilles, uh, the feet, the plantar fascia, those sort of structures, um, you're actually having load taken away from them, just as a general rule of thumb. And that's because you're, um, the, usually if the heel has more stack, then there's more protection, there's more support. Usually there's a little bit more cushioning. And so um, it's not as harsh. And if especially if you're a heel striker, it's a little bit more softer. Um, and that's usually where that heel stack comes into it. But we know that we don't decrease loads. We're saying, yeah, fantastic. All that load is um, being taken away from our plantar fascia, our feet, our Achilles, happy days. But we know that we don't generally reduce load. What we do is we shift load when it comes to runners. And so if someone has an increased stack height, so they've gone from a 10 mil to a 15 mil, um, most likely if you are a heel striker or if you're slightly um, overreaching with your initial contact, what that would do is increase the forces on the hip and increase forces on the knee. And um, on the opposite side, if we were to have the heel stack 
Um, well, I should probably say this is because like when it comes to the heel stack, you're allowing for protection, you're allowing for support. And for those who are most likely to heel strike, if you have a higher stack height, then you are more likely, generally speaking, to contact further in front of you, even if it's just by a few centimeters. And what that does is produce more of a breaking force, which equals higher loads through the hip and knee. So I hope that makes sense. It's really hard without a diagram, but hopefully I've explained that well enough. On the opposite side of things, if we were to decrease your heel drop and say, um, as an extreme example, which is actually quite common, um, someone goes from a traditional shoe, say that has a 10 mil um, heel drop. So there's a 10 mil difference from the heel to the toes. And then they transition to a minimalist shoe or a barefoot shoe, which has zero drop, then uh, that is very extreme. So you're looking at 10 mil in difference. Um, and it, it almost has the opposite effect of what I was just describing. So if you can visualize someone making contact with the ground in slow-mo, and then they go into mid stance where that foot is directly under their body, if we can freeze frame that, if you're if you don't have a slight stack height, like if your heel isn't that high off the ground, what you're doing is your Achilles is going under more stretch and there's a little bit of a difference in the foot position and there's less support and therefore the muscles need to work harder. The muscles around the Achilles and the calf and the foot and the plantar fascia, they all need to work slightly harder um, because they don't have that protection and they're just in a slightly different position. They're more plantar flexed, if you could say, like... Um, it puts the calf and the Achilles under slightly more stretch. And if that's done under load, and if that's done repetitively, then it can have a significant spike in load and trigger an injury. And so there's the, the balance that we're working with. And when it comes to your question, Vanessa, it seems like going from 10 mil to 13 mil is just a very, it's very, um, slight. It's not too much of a difference. It's not too much of a, a stack height to, for me to worry about. But um, I would say maybe keep in mind of other factors, how different of a shoe is it. And there's a whole bunch of different um, qualities when it comes to a type of shoe. And stack height might just be one of them. Weight is another one if the shoe might be slightly heavier or slightly lighter. We're looking at flare as well. Like if you were to look at the shoe from behind, um, how wide of a heel counter it is. So um, where the, the heel is housed, um, on the outside, does the, um, the foam, how wide is that foam compared to your other shoes? All those kind of things. And <clears throat> there is, if you don't know much about the minimalist index from the running clinic in Canada, they have a whole website page dedicated to working out the difference between shoes and working out the minimalist or maximalist index for a particular shoe. And they bring in these sort of factors. They bring in how much the technology of the shoe, how flexible the shoe is, the weight of the shoe, the heel drop, the flare, all that kind of thing. And there might be something in that shoe that contributes. So yes, we've got the change in heel drop, but there might be other things as well that slightly contribute. And then that might um, cause the the injury to arise, your, your knee pain to arise. So I know you said in the question, there was only two runs. Um, perhaps I'm not too sure how far of a run those two runs were, whether they were small or, um, 
a longer, more considerable run, but you might want to consider for every runner that's listening, um, if you have a change in the type of shoe, like if you have a change that you're not used to, perhaps it's lighter, perhaps it's heavier, perhaps it's more protection, less protection sort of thing. You want to make sure that you're slowly transitioning into those shoes and don't do complete runs in a new shoe, especially if it's a long run, especially if it's a hard run. Um, make sure that you're slowly transitioning into those shoes. Might take a couple of weeks, um, but it's uh, it's not really recommended that you just transition straight away and then you do all your runs in that new shoe, especially if it's a change in quality. Like if you love a type of shoe and then you buy a new shoe that's exactly the same, exactly the same height, um, flexibility, stack height, you don't need to transition that way. But if it's a change in the, the quality of the shoe, then you might need a transition period. So keep that in mind. So thanks for your question, Vanessa. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Okay, next we have... um... Who submitted this question? Where is where is it at the top? Oh, it's from Vanessa again. <laughs> That's why I don't have a, a name in front of me. Um, okay, Vanessa again asks, what are the benefits of shockwave therapy for stress fracture in the sacrum? Um, and well, she had a stress fracture in the sacrum and then 12 months later, the pain still persists. Um, so would shockwave be effective? Perhaps it's from scar tissue, etc. Okay. Um, so luckily, as you probably know, in the last episode, I interviewed Benoit Matthew and um, we did talk about lateral hip pain, but he is actually a shockwave specialist and I managed to pick his brain a little bit. Um, I was actually recording an episode with Benoit um, on camera just after our interview and I was talking to him about shockwave and particularly around proximal hamstring tendinopathy for my online course and uh, it was probably a 10-minute interview just talking about Shockwave. And I um, the recording didn't work because while my recording from the podcast was uploading, I was actually recording the, um, the video, Shockwave video simultaneously. And it didn't, it ended up didn't recording because Zoom uh, doesn't do that, doesn't do this concurrent uh, recording. So I thought everything went well. We did this 10 minute interview and then I lost everything. So I might have to get him back on and um, do the same thing, but it's annoying. But anyway, um, he did mention a few things about shockwave, which you might find um, intriguing. So um, when it comes to the research around shockwave, uh, most of the research is teetered towards chronic tendons and not for much else. And what the, the shockwave is doing is trying to kickstart healing and it tries to trigger healing by disrupting uh, the structure and disru- disrupting the the process for, with a painful like kind of short session. Like he was saying that during shockwave sessions, it's actually quite painful. It only lasts three minutes to have a shockwave treatment done, but it, it breaks up things, it disrupts it, it actually triggers healing. So it's sore during the time, but over a couple of days, it takes a couple of days to settle and um, yeah, kickstarts healing and then you add on rehab and then that's where all the, the benefits 
start. And he had a really nice analogy of um, to describe that we're not really the shockwave doesn't really heal too much. What it does is make a good a better rehab experience. And he had this analogy. He lives in the UK, so he was flying from the UK to Perth um, a couple of years ago to um, attend a seminar or be a guest speaker at a seminar and he said um, it's kind of like the difference flying first class to flying economy the plane the flight will take exactly the same time it'll be just as um, unbearable because we're we're traveling the same time however the experience is made better if you're in first class because you get to spread out you get the um, you get all those advantages uh, as opposed to economy where you're squeezed in and um, you're just like looking at the time, how many, how many hours to go, how many hours to go, how many hours to go. It's a different experience. It's kind of like a more painful experience, which tends to perceive the um, the flight to take longer. And shockwave is exactly the same. We're not healing anything. It's not going to heal you quicker. The time's still going to take the same, except the experience is better. We're lowering um, your sensitivity because we're triggering that um that healing state so you're going to do your rehab at lower levels of pain so instead of like a six to seven while we're rehabbing it's now a two or a three or a one and we're still adding on those um strength and rehab benefits not just the shockwave shockwave helps desensitize things then we add in the rehab so when it comes to your question vanessa about um low back pain and breaking up scar tissue that I don't think the evidence shows that it's going to achieve those benefits. Um, and especially when it comes to low back pain, like there's too many different factors of what lower back pain could be. And I did talk to Benoit, how about low back pain? And he, um, that's pretty much what he said. Like there's so many different things that is contributing to low back pain that you might, um, that shockwave probably won't be that appropriate. But I do have um, something that you could go to if you love podcasts, which you probably do because you're listening to this. Um, I recommend you go listen to, it's called Empowered Beyond Pain Podcast. And I recommend this to everyone who has either chronic pain or has low back pain. And it's only just started. It's only a couple of months old. So it's probably got maybe 10 or 11 episodes, but I recommend everyone just listen to the episodes that have been released from episode one to where it's released now. You'll learn so much about low back pain and why people get low back pain, why people don't recover from low back pain. Um, super, super knowledgeable guys, a whole bunch of researchers. Seth O'Neill is one of the leading researchers in the world on this topic and is um, involved in the podcast. So um, please, if you love breaking down myths and misconceptions like we do in this podcast, you'll love that podcast. So it's called Empowered Beyond Pain. Highly recommended. All right, let's move on. Okay. Um, Virginia, thanks for submitting your question. Uh, she asks, um, first of all, I'll move. I'll start with her, her question around sprint sprint exercises for a runner. So she says, are there any particular strength exercises that you would recommend for a sprint runner? Um, yes, <laughs> I have a simple answer. The simple answer uh, would be, Whatever exercises you are doing, if you are in the gym and you've recognized the importance of strength training to improve performance, um, still stick to your standards, still stick to your squats, still stick to your deadlifts. However, you can change the quality or the tempo of the exercise in order to suit a more explosive, 
more, um, yeah, just tailoring more to the quality of running that you're looking for. So how I would do that if you're doing a squat or a deadlift, what we do is a slow eccentric phase. So um, as during the down phase of a squat or the down phase of a deadlift, we want to slowly load up the tendons. And then on your way back up, we want to do it slightly quicker. So it might be something like a three second or two second down phase followed by a one second up phase. And we want to make sure that your tendons and your muscles and your joints are still hitting that adaptation zone. We're not sending a huge spike and um, increasing the likelihood of injury. We want to make sure that it's done gradually and that you're adapting as you're building onto that change. And we also want to make sure the technique stays exactly the same when we're changing these tempos. And as we do that, it's good for all runners because we're, um, we're allowing the tendons to uh, take in a lot of load and then explosively produce force, which is exactly what we need for running. So if you want to hone in on that, um, that'd be a perfect way of doing that. So that's a simple answer. Just keep to what you're doing, but just um, add in that quality. The non-simple answer, the bit more of a technical answer is um, I have a fair few explosive or plyometric exercises that you can do because what we're doing is trying to stimulate a lot of explosive force from the joints, from the muscles and try and trigger a lot of quick, um, quick firing neurons, which are very good for sprint runners. So um, you might need to YouTube a couple of these, but some of my favorites are called rocket jumps. Um, if you have like a plyo box or some sort of um, sturdy box, you can do rocket jumps. You can do uh, drop squat jumps, which you're kind of, if you can imagine, you've got two um, plyo boxes about a meter or two apart. You're on top of one of the boxes and then you just drop to the ground. So you don't jump off the box, you just step off the box. When you impact the ground, you impact the ground into a squat and then maybe like a half squat, and then you're just quickly launching yourself to land on that second box. And so it's a quick firing, really rapid, land in a squat, and then just explosive back up to another box. And that's a, a nice plyometric exercise that you can um, you can work on. Uh, doing things like sled pushes, if you have that um, luxury of being a gym that has a sled or a CrossFit gym that has a sled, that's perfect because we're applying load and we're pushing a sled, but we're also getting what we call this triple extension movement. We're getting extension through the foot. So we're kind of like how you would push off if you were running. At the same time, we're straightening the knee and at the same time, we're extending our hips. So our, our whole entire leg is straightening out behind us. And that's what we call triple extension, which is exactly what you need for propulsion when you're a runner. Um, so keep that in mind that there's some really nice ones. Bulgarian split squats um, with a little bit more force, a little bit more speed. Um, I love those for runners. Um, it does have, um, it does work the quads really well. It does work the glutes really well. I don't think I have time in this podcast to explain all of these exercises. So um, a quick YouTube um, search will come up with a lot of answers and uh, help depict this a, a little bit more. Uh, the last thing I will say on this topic is you can do things like hills, hill repeats, hill sprints, if you're adapted to it, if your body is strong enough to tolerate it, um, because it does send an incredible amount of load through your calves and through your Achilles and through your plantar fascia. So make sure that um, if you are doing some hill repeats, that 
you are capable of doing it because we don't want to see another injury because we want to train smarter. <laughs> but um, that's a really nice option because if you get really nice on the hills, if you get really fast on the hills, as soon as you go to flat, you're going to be you're going to be sprinting a lot faster. So that's um, a couple of options that you can try. Um, the second one I have from the same person, Virginia. Thank you. Um, she asks, um, "What would?" Be your opinion for the best strength training for an endurance athlete in the number of sets or reps or intensity and weight. And she said, uh, would you recommend, like as an example, would you recommend doing strength exercises at a moderate intensity of 70 to 75 of your 1RM or um, and doing like say 12 to 15 reps or at a higher intensity at around 80 to 90% your 1RM at eight to 10 reps. And so um, I've just last week recorded an episode with um, Colin, who is a um, PT in the States, and that will be released next week. But um, we do talk about this a lot. So it's a really good timing, actually. And um, everyone has a different opinion. Colin would said as well, like if you open up a website or a magazine or something, everyone has a particular take on how you should be working in the gym in terms of intensity, in terms of um, technique, in terms of what exercises. Some people say deadlifts are bad for you. Some people say deadlifts are the answer. Like it's it's crazy. So um, keep an open mind, perhaps try something and see what works for you. Um, before I dive into this topic a little bit further, let me explain the, the one rep max or a certain rep max for those um, who aren't much of a gym goer or doesn't know that terminology. So we have a one rep max for like a squat or a deadlift or any sort of exercise. The true one RM is if you were to do one of those uh, reps. So if you do a squat, if you were to load up your the weights and do one squat as um, under as much load as you can under with the right technique, and then that that weight is so heavy that you couldn't possibly do a second rep. That is what we call your true one RM but then we can work with these numbers. So you can have a 10 RM, you can have a weight with your squats where you can just push out eight, then nine, then just get to 10. And then the weight is too heavy for you to possibly do 11. That weight and that would be, would consider your 10 rep max. So it's under a certain weight. And like you were explaining, there's a different intensity. So you're working at a higher intensity if you work at, say, an 8 rep max because it's so heavy compared to a 15 rep max where it's lighter and you can do 15 reps, but you couldn't possibly do 16. So well, they're different intensities. And what's better? What's, what's more advantageous for a runner over another? Um, so that's explaining the rep max kind of thing. So we've got these, these two paradigms should we go with the high reps where we're doing 15 or should we go with the low reps where we're doing 8 to 10 and for my answer i think there's a mixture of both in my opinion um and as well as rich blagrove who i interviewed early in the um the podcast journey um if you haven't listened to him or if you haven't listened to um my previous or season two, where we talk about all that strength training, then I recommend you go back and listen to that one because it's a really, really good one um, to learn about how to run better, how to run faster, how how strength training influences running performance. Um, so Rich Blagrove has the same um, opinion as I do, pretty much because I learned from him. <laughs> um, 
he does tend to recommend that as long as you're safe in the gym, as long as you have a good technique, that running will um, build up your endurance. So while, while you're in the gym, we might as well have that as an opportunity to train strength at a lower dosage as long as you're safe, as long as you provide the, rec- the right technique. Um, so eight reps, an eight rep max would be like if you're very experienced, especially for a runner. We're not really wanting to go below that. We're not being like um, bodybuilders. We're not trying to break any records. Um, but anywhere around 10 reps, if it's your 10 rep max and you're doing it safely, you're going to get a lot of benefits from running. And um, what I would recommend for most people is to, um, if you have like a 12 rep max, then you can apply that weight for a 12 rep max and then do only 10 reps. So you're not pushing to failure. You're not pushing at your maximum where you do 12 and then you couldn't possibly do 13. What we're doing is applying that same weight, but we're only doing 10 reps. So we're not pushing ourselves to failure. And um, we're almost staying safer in the gym because it's kind of like those last couple of reps where you might lose technique or you might, um, yeah, you might have that increased risk of injury. Keep that in mind. So it, it does take a lot of training to build up to that weight. It does take a lot of adaptation for you to build up to that weight. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, Colin that I chat had a chat to, he kind of recommends keeping joints very safe. Um, we have a whole topic around gym safety, which I said would be released next week. Um, and he is under the, the impression that we want to try and keep to the higher reps, sort of the 12 to 15s. And... Um, not necessarily through range. We talk about knee ranges and what might be the the most ideal for you. It makes sense that we don't need to do a full depth squat. Like it's not really functional for a runner. Um, If you don't like doing a full depth squat, then you don't need to. You can do a half squat. You can do a three quarter squat and still receive a lot of benefits from strength training. So keep that in mind as well. And why we do all this, um, like I said, there's an important, it improves your performance, it improves running performance. And if you haven't listened to season two, um, I don't really want to repeat myself, but um, go back to season two, have a listen to all those strength training um, episodes that I do have, as well as my interview with Rich Blagrove. He is one of the best, one of the world's leading researchers in strength training for endurance runners. We're not necessarily talking about sprinters, we're talking about endurance runners. So have a listen to that. So, um, that's just my opinion. Take that on board. Some people might recommend a lower rep max. You might want to do six to eight. I think that's too much, but hey, that's just my opinion. And have a listen to Colin next week and have a listen to his guidance because um, he's a superstar when explaining these sort of things. We have one more question and it's from Jill. Uh, Jill asks, uh, I loved, I'd love to know more about the use of kinetic tape. Uh, when should it be used? What's the purpose of taping? For how long? What are the pros and cons? And I don't know too much about kinetic tape. Um, if you're referring to like rock tape or kinesio tape, that's probably what we call it around here. Um, it's kind of like that stretchy tape, usually really colorful. If you see athletes wearing it that you put on. Um, and I have a, a nice way of answering this. And uh, the purpose of taping uh what it's doing, it's hard to say. Like, um, if if we can have a similar topic when it comes to orthotics, it's it's sort of kind of like a similar thing. So number one, it can work for someone. It works for someone some of the time, but never for everyone all of the time. And that's the same thing for orthotics. It works for some people, 
some of the time, but never for everyone all of the time. So you might need to do a bit of a trial and error. This is if you're in pain. I'm not talking about taping someone for performance. I'm not talking about taping someone for injury prevention. This is if someone is in pain. Um, That's the only reason I would ever use it. And what we're doing is we're applying the tape through trial and error to see if your running is changed, to see if it reduces pain in whatever location it might be or if it reduces irritability. And it might work for you. It might not work for you. It depends on how you're applying the tape. Um, It depends on the therapist that is applying the tape, the techniques that they use. And if it is reducing your pain levels and if it is reducing your, the sensitivity to the structure or you can um, run without a limp and you're back to doing something, even if it's at low loads, then it's a good thing because we're still, we're still running. We're not flaring up any symptoms. It's, um, and, and like we know from all our other previous episodes, if you stay running while you're injured without flaring it up, then it's going to be a good thing for your rehab, but we need to implement some, something else. Um, so that's my first point. It works for some people some of the time, never for everyone all the time. So it requires a little bit of trial and error. The second thing I would need to say on this topic is that um, the reasons why it's effective for some people, it's hard to say. Possibly it could be changing the forces on the loads. Uh, same with orthotics. We're not too sure why orthotics are effective for some people. Perhaps it changes kinetics. Perhaps it changes the um, the amount of load applied to a certain tendon or the amount of load applied to a certain joint or a certain muscle. And that change in force um, could just lead to less pain, could lead to less irritability. There might be a possibility of certain beliefs that people have. It might be proprioception of feeling the tape applying on a certain direction and that makes you feel better, makes you feel more confident and that helps the brain calm down. So perhaps there's a, an interplay there. Um, so that's the that's, that'd be my answer as to why it works, but there's not really any evidence to show to have the answer, this is why it works. So that's the second thing. The third thing I want to implement is that Tape, as well as orthotics, should be in combination with some sort of strength rehab. So we're using tape, but only as a short term. Um, We're only using it in the short term. That's it. If you are using tape every time you go for a run, um, you need to do some sort of strengthening, some sort of rehab in order to feel confident without using the tape. As well as orthotics, I like to train people to not need orthotics instead of to become reliant on the orthotics. Similar with tape, I don't want people to become reliant on tape. You should be rehabbing your own weak links. You should be strengthening your own weak links so that you don't need the tape in the long term. Um, so that's that's the third thing. So number one, works for some people some of the time, but not for everyone all of the time. Number two, um, the reasons why tape works is hard to say, possibly because it's changing forces required for the body or shifting the load. Um, and there's also the beliefs and proprioception that might be interplaying as well. And number three, there there should be incorporating some form of strength and rehab if you are in pain and if you are using tape. So it's never the only option and it's never a long-term option. Some examples um, that I found work really well, patellofemoral pain, if you were to apply tape on the kneecap, um, if it's applied correctly, depending on the type of patellofemoral pain you do have, um, it can help a runner run pain-free and it works really well. But then we're also integrating some sort of strength work. Um, 
anywhere, anything around the foot and ankle, like plantar fascia, Achilles, um, heel pain. Tape could be really effective and kind of um, mimic an orthotic. And this this goes for rigid tape. I should say that as well. This goes for rigid tape. It goes for um, kinesio tape, rock tape, all types of tape. Um, all these principles still apply. So there's some really nice examples. And that's it today. So we've covered a lot. We've covered um, going through educating through heel drops and what the difference a heel drop has on the body. We've got shockwave, we've got strength exercises, sprint exercises, um, and also covering taping. So hopefully uh, it's answered a whole bunch of your questions. Hopefully, um, as a listener, you haven't submitted these questions, but you've learned a lot along the way. Um, And yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more and more of these in the future. If you want to join the Patreon group, I do have uh, the link in the show notes. And yeah, come join our Patreon family. And if you're just enjoying the ride, you love learning, you love just uh, coasting through this experience, then um, keep listening, subscribe. And if you want to show your thanks um, without contributing $5 per month, then I'd love for you to leave a rating and review. And that's um, that would be another thing. If you don't have Apple Podcasts and you don't um, you don't know how to leave a review on Spotify or some Android app, then another thing would just be to share this podcast, and that would be a huge way of saying thank you and um, help contribute to the podcast as well. So, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.